So as we're continuing our exploration of the paramis, I thought it would be nice to just read the list again. So we have generosity, integrity, renunciation or letting go, wisdom or insight, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. And today I'm going to be speaking about energy and patience. Um, and I'm going to start with a uh, children's story, kind of a bedtime story. It's called The Garden by Arnold Lobel from the book of stories Frog and Toad Together. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog. It's nice, but it was very hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here's some seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home and planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down the garden a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and loudly said, Now seeds, start growing. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds, start growing. Frog came running. What's all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You're shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, said Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out the window. Drat, he said. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to the garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad, and they will not be afraid. Toad let a, read a long story to his seeds. And the next day, Toad sang to his seeds. And the next day, he read poems to his seeds. And the next day, he played music for his seeds. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. Then, he be then Toad became very tired and fell asleep. The next day, Frog said, Toad, Toad, wake up, look at your garden. Little green plants were coming out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right. It was very hard work. So this parable is um, clearly about patience, but it also is about energy, like the way in which Toad may not have used his energy wisely. And uh, the simile is quite apropos to our endeavor here. You know, the Buddha referred to this practice that we're doing as bhavana, which could be translated as cultivation. And the principles of what we're doing here, cultivating beautiful qualities of the heart, are quite aligned to that of cultivating plants. I've heard it said that uh, patience is the mother of all paramis. And it makes sense in the way that whatever we're trying to cultivate, it takes time 
and so therefore requires patience. But I think there's actually a problem with this English word patience. I remember as a child, usually on a long car ride, in that mind state of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the adult response is always just be patient. You know, but there's no instructions for how to do this or what this really means. So for me, it turned into a kind of stoic, grit my teeth, bear down and just try to make it through the unpleasantness of the experience. And so with this conditioning that I think many of us have, there can be a real contraction or even aversion to the word patient or the idea of being patient. So there's some other words that I prefer over patience. One is constancy. So this is the idea of just being steady and consistent, whatever we're doing. Forbearance, invoking the paramita of renunciation that Bruni spoke so beautifully about, that in the energy of impatience, there's usually wanting to do something, wanting to change something. And so to be patient is to forbear from that activity. I like perseverance, gentle persistence, acceptance, letting be, steadiness, consistency, letting go. Driving is a really good place to notice impatience in daily life. The other day I was making a left turn and there was a car in front of me, um, the little old lady in it, and uh, she just wasn't going. And I got really impatient and I stories coming up in my mind about how we should be retesting older drivers every year to make sure they're safe on the road. And, and then I realized, out of the corner of my eye, I realized that there was a disabled person that was sort of hobbling across the road. And this little lady was patiently waiting for that person. And I get this sense that often when I'm feeling impatient, there's this way in which I'm not seeing the full picture. just as Toad perhaps wasn't fully understanding what it means to garden. We live in a very impatient culture. Many of you know of Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which goes by its initials IMS. And uh, according to Sharon Salzberg, one of the founders in the early days, they would get quite a lot of letters addressed to instant Meditation Society. <laughs> and you know, where I live in LA, I can get any product on my doorstep. It's not two days, it's not one day, it's pretty much the same day. And when they miss that same day, I'm like, ah, what happened? A friend of mine was telling me about a new pizza place down the street from where I live. Uh, it's called 800 Degrees Pizza. The, the oven is so hot that it takes about 60 seconds to cook the pizza. And I asked my friend, you know, is it good? And he looked at me with this sort of puzzled face and he said, it's fast. <laughs> 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 I 
This is the thing, believe it or not, in our culture, drive-through churches, drive-through weddings. <clears throat> I've heard it said that before you marry a person, you should make them use a computer with really slow internet service. <laughs> and then you'll see who they really are. In the suttas, um, it's often spoken of the paramis as ripening. I like this metaphor of ripening. Again, it's an agricultural metaphor, but it has the element of patience been built into it. You know, we might have little tricks, like you can put an avocado in a bag with an onion, and it'll speed up the process a little bit. But in the end, you have to wait. Nature has to take its course. And that's like our practice. Like we have little ways in which can be, we can be skillful and we can promote the ripening of our beautiful qualities of heart and mind, but in the end, they take their own time. And like many or even most of the things in practice, we cultivate patience by getting more and more intimate with its opposite moving towards the experience of impatience, to develop a relationship with what it's like to be impatient. This thing we call impatience uh, manifests in different ways. Often it's a combination of aversion and wanting. So there's some dissatisfaction with this moment and some wanting either the next moment or a different moment. And because the experience of aversion and wanting are unpleasant, it's quite easy to fall into the habit of making a project out of it. So this has arisen, how am I going to fix it? What am I going to change? Rather than just meeting the experience, noticing where it is in the body. Does it have a shape? Does it have an energetic quality? Where is the unpleasantness in impatience? sensing whether it's moving or static. Where's the aversion? What's wanted? Are there some inner narratives or beliefs that are feeding all of this? Often when I'm impatient, there's a belief that it shouldn't be this way. So the line at the grocery store shouldn't be this long. And so I add it to my inner list of grievances. Uh, which I seem to be collecting. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with them, <laughs> but it's a very long list. Uh, but the point in the end is that the line is that long. And in that moment, um, there's not much you can do about it. Another place that impatient arises quite often, especially on retreat, is when there is boredom. So nothing particularly interesting happening. Some of you have reported this experience in the practice meetings. I think most of us are used to kind of constant mental stimulation. Any moment these days where there's nothing happening, you know, we pick up a device and you can listen to any song or consume literally endless amounts of entertainment. But what would it be like to be interested in boredom? to get up close and intimate with what it's like to be bored. Where's boredom in the body? Where do you feel boredom and what's the quality of that energy? Is there tightness, tension, pressure, vibration? 
even feeling into the suffering of boredom, the craving, the thirst for stimulation. Oftentimes in impatience, I notice there's a, not only a metaphorical leaning forward, but I'll often find that even my posture is leaning forward as if that would get me to the next moment faster. And sometimes when I'm driving and I'm running late, I'll notice that I'm pushing against the steering wheel as if that would like get me there a little bit faster, which really just is wasted energy. There's also a kind of impatience that arises because I think many of us are conditioned to believe that we're always supposed to be doing something. Um, There's also a kind of a boredom that arises, a uh, boredom or impatience or kind of a slightly aversive feeling when nothing's really happening. And I've had this experience of looking closer and saying, well, nothing's really happening. Nothing's really a problem. There's actually some sense of ease, maybe even contentment, but the feeling of being at ease, content, without a project, nothing to do is so unfamiliar and foreign that it has a kind of impatience built into it. Pema Chodron says, patience is the training in abiding with the restlessness of our energy and letting things evolve at their own speed. So if patience is a kind of dissatisfaction with this moment, then the essence of cultivating patience is letting go of this aversion and opening to accepting what actually is. <coughs> Stepping into the truth that we really only get this moment. And even if we think the next moment may be better, we don't actually know. There's a few lines from a poem by Dana Falls that I really love. Um, she says, when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. So we practice acknowledging the truth of how things are in this moment, meeting that experience, not in a way to try to make it go away, but in a way to try to know that experience intimately. This is the Buddha's seminal teaching of the first noble truth that we can be intimate with the things that are unpleasant or cause suffering. Cultivating kindness for the inner experience, cultivating kindness for ourselves, and doing our best not to add more suffering through resistance, aversion, or blame. So the words of Lao Tzu, always we hope someone else has the answer, some other place will be better, some other time it will all turn out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. And it has already turned out. At the center of your being, you have the answer. You know who you are and you know what you want. 
There is no need to run outside for better seeing, nor to peer from a window. Rather, abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see the way to do is to be. So like much of our practice, this comes back again and again to this training of developing a relationship with the present moment experience that includes everything. The sweet, the bitter, the bittersweet. And my sense is that over time, our palate adjusts and what was too bitter to bear becomes tolerable or even palatable. And the slightly sweet can become a delicacy. Patience is invoking this sense of perseverance, gentle persistence, forbearance, letting go, letting be. A kind of loyalty or dedication or devotion to this moment. Maybe a kind of softening into this moment. The uh, <clears throat> Pali English Dictionary translates Kanti as patience, forbearance, and forgiveness, which is quite interesting. I just learned that this afternoon. And it brings to, to mind uh, my, the words of Suzuki Roshi, just to be alive is enough. Just to be alive is enough. So moving from patience to energy, actually they appear on the list in the other order, but uh, energy, virya, usually defined as uh, energy, diligence, enthusiasm, zeal, persistence, vigor. Energy is a kind of uh, vitality, a kind of uh, resourceness that manifests in the body and the mind. Uh, and the energy in the mind is kind of, feels like a kind of a spiritual energy. It's a kind of... Um, when the conditions are just right, when there's a certain kind of joy or rapt attention, that there's a kind of an uplift that happens to the energy and it can feel as if um, we don't have to practice the Dharma, the Dharma is practicing us. Virya can be defined as an attitude of gladly engaging in wholesome activities, and it functions to cause one to accomplish wholesome or virtuous activities. I'm not sure if this is a meaningful distinction, but I tend to see energy as slightly different from effort. To me, energy is the, the currency, the potential, the force, the, the energy, <laughs> uh, and effort is how we translate that vital force into action in whatever we're doing. 
And so we can bring mindfulness to both the energy of the body as well as the energy of the mind or the spiritual energy. And it's fruitful to investigate the ways in which we uh, can cultivate more energy, the ways in which we can balance our energies, how we can use our energy in more skillful ways as it becomes effort. In the body, often we only notice energy when we're really tired or the energy is imbalanced in a way where there's restlessness. But if you tune in to the sense of energy in the body, there are all kinds of movements of energy happening all the time. Gross and subtle movements of energy. The breath has a very strong energetic component. Emotions in the body highly energetic. Pain has an energetic quality. My own sense is that in the body, you know, most um, processes or things that the body does use up energy, and that energy gets restored when we sleep, when we eat, drink, when we rest. And I think it's slightly different in the mind. Um, so I'll talk about that in a moment. The, the walking meditation is a great way to balance and smooth out the energy in the body, you know, in addition to being a core mindfulness practice. And, you know, we have a tendency, I think, to preference consciously and, and unconsciously the sitting meditation, but the the Buddha was quite clear that you could awaken in any of the postures. But even on a physiological level, the bilateral movements of the body and walking calm the nervous system. This is why sometimes when we're anxious, we might just even subconsciously pace the room because it has that kind of calming quality. It also can enliven the body when there's the energy is sluggish. So of course we have to manage the energy of the body and to do so we need to pay attention to food, rest, and sleep. If we eat too much, we might get groggy. If we eat too little, we might be restless. The same is true for sleep, finding that optimal middle way. And of course the energy of the body and the energy of the mind are inextricably connected to and influence each other. I've been a little bit under the weather these last few days, and I noticed that that affects the quality of energy I have in my mind, the meditation. Also, when the energy in the mind is agitated or disrupted in some way, that usually manifests in some way in the body. So in the mind, it seems to me that there are many processes that use up energy, and then there are many processes that uh, generate more energy. So some things that use up this uh, spiritual or mental energy, repetitive or discursive thinking, worrying, fretting, and complaining. You know, if we keep, as Gil was saying last night, picking up these thoughts and getting engaged and involved with them, then we just burn up this energy, usually without much to show for it in the end. 
So it's helpful to cultivate this practice of continually setting aside these kinds of uh, concerns, noting the thoughts as they arise, letting them be, coming back to the anchor of the breath. Sometimes when these thought patterns are recurrent and strong, I'll I'll kind of, in my mind's eye, uh, bow to them. Thank you. Not now. There's a way in which the thoughts of worrying or planning are, you know, unskillful patterns that are really designed to take care of you, to help you, to protect you, to keep you safe. So I can meet them with a sense of kindness rather than trying to push them away. They're doing their best. Another uh, arena in which our energy gets sapped is when we are caught in the hindrances. So when we're caught in our wanting, which often has the notion that if I just, just get this thing, this one thing, that it'll all be okay, whatever that thing might be. Aversion, the flip side, believing that if we get rid of this or that, that everything will be okay. Restlessness and worry and sloth and torpor are very uh, energetic uh, experiences, very intertwined with the energy in the body when it's out of balance or when it's insufficient. When we get caught in doubt, wondering what we're doing here, could have gone to Hawaii instead, or is this working, or some thought that I'm doing it wrong. And the key point is is that the hindrances are natural, but do we believe the message that they're sending us? Do we give them authority? Do we get caught in them? Or do we see them as energies in the mind-body that arise and pass away? You could generalize that actually and say that getting caught or mired in or overly identified with any kind of afflictive or unwholesome mind state saps our energy. Which is not to demonize afflictive emotions. You know, we all have streams of sadness and anger and fear and loneliness or feelings of inadequacy. Uh, This is part of what it means to be human. But can we notice the difference between being stuck in an experience where it becomes a fixed reality, where it colors all other experience, in contrast to knowing that experience with mindfulness as an impersonal phenomena in the mind that comes and goes? So on the other hand, there are many things that generate energy, spiritual energy, and it's essentially the opposite. Any, basically any wholesome quality of mind and heart tends to uplift the kind of spiritual energy of Birya. So when we are able to touch into faith, we have a kind of willingness to practice, we're confident in our practice, trusting in our practice, trusting in our own inner wisdom, that uplifts energy. When faith is lagging, we might borrow the faith of our teachers or our friends. 
recollection of the refuges, sensing into and recollecting the beautiful qualities of a Buddha, the beautiful qualities of the Dharma, the beautiful qualities of the Sangha. This is often chanted by monastics as a way of uplifting the energy. The five recollections to recollect old age, sickness, death, that we will be inevitably separated from everything that is dear to us and that we live with the effects of our deeds of body, speech, and mind. Sometimes to the Western ear, this sounds like a little bit of a downer, but it's actually uh, to help us touch into the preciousness, the fleetingness of this life and to really make the most of it. There's a modern version of this practice. Um, there's an app that you can get for iPhone and Android, and it's called We Croak. <laughs> and five times a day, it sends you a reminder that you're going to die. And so th I have actually have about six of these notifications in my notification pane. You know, you will die, you will die, you will die. And if you click on each one, it has kind of an inspiring quote about death. <laughs> Other forms of kindling to energy, uh, investigation. Well, I should start with mindfulness. Mindfulness is, you know, the most wholesome state because it shifts our perspective and our relationship in itself with whatever experience is happening. But part of the mindfulness practice that we do is this investigation, Dhammavichaya, where we really get up close and intimate with the nuances of the experience that we're having. This uh, sense of investigation, interest, curiosity, all these are very powerful kindling for energy. And then all the beautiful states, all the paramis, joy, happiness, well-being, ease, comfort, kindness, compassion, all these things, when we can touch into them, when they're present, when we can arouse them, when they're not present, um, have the tendency to increase our energy. So how do we best use our energy? Um, I've heard it said that nothing on retreat Nothing like a good sit to ruin the day. Because the rest of the day, we're just trying to get back to that good sit. And sometimes it feels like even in spiritual practice, we might have this sort of like long list of to-do's, to the sense that we need to accomplish something, that we need to achieve something. Um, I have an inner voice that, that almost nags me in a kind of an unkind way to be more kind, to be more mindful. Uh, and I think this is an important place to pay attention in practice where self-improvement becomes the idea more than self-exploration. I like to think of the practice as a self-exploration practice because I feel like the the notion of self-improvement itself has a kind of violence in it. So I wanted to share something with you. This is um, 
This is from a prominent activist for the autistic community, someone who himself is on the spectrum and is a spokesman for that community. And, and I share this only because it has that kind of um, the felt sense of what I'm talking about as self-improvement being a kind of um, violence. Uh, and I have no... Um, <coughs> opinion or it's not a commentary about autism or, or anything related to that. So this is Jim Sinclair. He says, when my parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the child I have did not exist and I wish I had a different non-autistic child. This is what we hear when you mourn over our existence. This is what we hear when you pray for a cure, that your fondest wish for us is that sometimes we will cease to be and strangers you can love will move in behind our faces. I just find those words quite touching because I see versions of that energy in myself but I don't often see the way in which it's um, so unhelpful. So how should we use our energy? Um, the Buddha had pretty clear and simple instructions of how to wisely use our energy as it transmutes from this kind of potential into actually efforts that we're going to make in our practice. As seen in the Eightfold Path factor of wise effort, There's, we were talking about this the other. There's something about the Indian mind that likes to list things. I see this in myself and my family and in the teachings. And sometimes they get it gets really complicated. Like there's four wise efforts, but I'm going to simplify it to say that uh, wise efforts are to arouse and sustain wholesome qualities of mind and heart that we open to them and let them nourish us and that we abandon and let go of unwholesome states when they're present and that we cultivate the practice of not letting unwholesome states arise. So arising wholesome qualities of mind, really all the things I was talking about that promote energy, that we can touch into them when we're present, we can arouse them through practices like gratitude practice, loving kindness practice, reflecting on things that bring us joy. And the letting go or abandoning is not a kind of pushing away or denying, but um, again, what Gil was talking about when he said not picking them up, not giving them attention, not feeding them. And the more and more we become intimately familiar with our patterns at some point, we have a kind of a thought, or sometimes it's even a pre-thought, like a movement of energy, and we know where this is going to take us. And then we have a moment of choice. You know, I'm not going that, not going down that road this time. So we can see that the Buddha's encouragement to use energy to promote that which is wholesome and leading to liberation, and that just happens to also increase energy, 
which we can use for more cultivation of more wholesome qualities in a kind of beautiful, virtuous cycle. I can hear Gil's voice in my head saying, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? I mean, it is nice. <laughs> in a way, we might contrast energy and patience, where patience is the willingness to accept the moment, and energy has the potential through effort to transform the moment, or at least transform one's relationship with the moment. But there's also a way in which I think they're related, because this word virya is also related to the word virile. So there is some sense of uh, that which is heroic. Sometimes in this vein, virya is also translated as courage. And in this notion, you know, the courage to fully meet our experience, however it might be, is quite aligned with the notion of patience. So they are both aligned and complementary. The other thing that really generates a lot of energy is sharing the Dharma. I feel so enlivened and um, privileged to have this time with you all and so inspired by your dedication to practice, the persistence, the courage, the you're all still here, even though there have been many difficult moments. You know, thank you for your attention and thank you for your practice. And we'll just sit for the rest of the period. 